Um, hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 65 of SAMA. SAMA is a program where we invite an expert to talk about their area of expertise. And this week, we're delighted to have Lisa Dennis. Now, Lisa is a certified life coach, medical intuitive, business intuitive, channeler and personal growth catalyst who has worked in healthcare and personal transformation fields since 1977. Her personal professional careers as a doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncture and an occupational therapist have given her a unique holistic perspective on health and illness. Lisa is an author. She's written Unveiling Lyme Disease. Is this what's behind your chronic illness, and this is what we'll be discussing a lot about today. She describes her 30-year odyssey of chronic illness, culminating in a chronic Lyme disease and multiple co-infection diagnosis in 2015. And today she's going to share her hard-won wisdom and strategies that she has to help people find their own path to better health. Now, during this interview, we'll be talking about highlights in her own health journey and also why she wrote her book and actually a whole lot of stuff but I'm pretty keen to start talking right away Lisa so welcome welcome to our show I'm so happy to have you with us thank you very much John I'm excited to be here too now I read your book and my heart reached out to you you went through very very tough times would you be willing to talk about the early years of your life as you talked in your book and, and how because it mirrors a, a way a lot of people's lives they have complications and things which weigh them down and you've overcome your obstacles so how did it all start when did the troubles start well yeah i'll get into that and just before i start that if i may um I do want to, I want to just give a snapshot of where I'm at now so then I can go back and study back up there because it's a bit of a misnomer. I think sometimes that, you know, uh, people like myself and so many millions out there in the world dealing with chronic Lyme that you find out what it is, you treat it and then you get better. And so there's the assumption because I wrote the book that I'm better now and I'm actually not. So... (laughs) So um, where I'm at right now is, is in the recovery journey. It's a very long process for all of us, you know, who are, who are dealing with this. And so I'm still dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of symptoms, uh, very typical symptoms that other people deal with as well, some a bit worse than others and some not nearly so bad as people suffering with this. So I still have a lot of neurological issues with, uh, brain fog and uh, pain and dizziness and rounds of vertigo all body systems affected you know from digestive to gynecological to um, hormones to muscular you know typical again with Lyme and co-infections oversensitivity to stimuli so lots of things having to kind of work around day by day and then ongoing multifaceted treatment which we may or may not get into um, at some point today so one of the things I I did want to start off with is say because I'm you know that whole thing that oh well you look fine and you must be fine that so many people with Lyme deal with is no I'm not actually but yes I can function for a few hours at a time 
And so I'm thrilled to be here functioning for a few hours for an hour of our time to, to be able to talk about this. And I really wanted to bring kind of the, the human side of Lyme to this today. The, there's so much incredible information out there for people um, in my book and so many other books. And, you know, people are thrilled to find that. But I don't see so much discussion on, you know, what's it like in, in the in the day-to-day -day reality and you know what are the kinds of things that people are facing all the time that even often their loved ones their, their friends their family co-workers if the person's well enough to work they just don't know about so I'm hoping to flush some of that out a bit today through my own story and I, the other reason I wanted to come up front and say no I'm not all better yet it's definitely a work in progress and, and pretty rough going some days I have all these notes in front of me today and you know which I may or may not use or look down on but I wanted to just be, be up with that too and say you know there are so many things with Lyme and, and so many other chronic illnesses that involve cognitive function that people have to find ways to compensate so this is my way to compensate to okay. incredible list making and note taking and stuff sure. so after that little preamble I'll get to, yeah, to my story so my story is about um, I'll just highlight some of it not spend too long on it but I, I think it's relevant for a lot, so many people I think can identify it's been a, over a 30-year journey and the label that I, uh, I started having health, I had a few you know, health problems as a child. And as I look back, I can see sort of certain triggers for immune system challenges, which many of us have from, from early trauma to uh, health issues, to family issues, to stresses, you know, like so many people deal with. So um, around late 20s or so, I had my first episode, which what, Nobody knew what it was called, but it later became a label of chronic fatigue syndrome of having, I was working as an occupational therapist, had to take a few months off work, uh, stop completely for a while, a debilitating fatigue. But I seemed with rest to bounce back and thought, okay, well, that was a, a one-off deal. Looking back on it, probably that was the time that I, I think I got a tick bite, although I didn't ever identify it at the time. I used to camp and stuff and be outside and you know, chances are that risk factor was there for that. And often people are don't ever get a rash and don't ever identify a tick bite, don't feel anything. They just get flu-like symptoms or feel ill. So that was likely the case for me. Um, so really over this long period of time, it was this pattern of debilitating fatigue and other symptoms, rising up, having to stop work for a period of time, um, dial back, get a bit better, rise up again with you know everything from family deaths to life stresses work stresses and you know this is something I think so many people will relate to you start to think that you're losing it you know like what's wrong with me that I can't keep up and you know apparently there's not that much wrong with me I've had this and that test and typically people go from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to find their way I was more so from a very young age you know in my 20s oriented to holistic medicine so I didn't do the round of 25 specialists in orthodox medicine that so many people do looking for answers I realized probably fortunately for me for aggravation that I, I didn't go through going to one more infectious disease doctor be told that I needed a psychiatrist and that's what a lot of people deal with right, right. so 
I, um, I, I sought a lot of supportive holistic uh, therapies, you know, homeopathy, naturopathy, supplements, lifestyle things increasingly. But this pattern of getting sick or getting better led me to change whole careers, retrain in things, attribute all kinds of external factors to why I kept getting sick, blame myself. So I think that a lot of the things I want to emphasize is my story and so many others is this waxing and waning that can be typical of Lyme, the worsening under periods of stress and the just not knowing and then this terrible self-recrimination and blame and so many of us with Lyme are very type A driven people. Good news, bad news. You know, we can you can harness those things to to move ahead and find answers, which I've done, lots of people have done, but the bad news is that kind of way of being in life really can set you up to drain your adrenals, tax your system, and uh, put quite a big load on your immune system because of so many, you know, mind-body connections. So I think that's what happened to me. This did my best, changed things, went up and down, and would get better and worse. As I was reading your book, you go into quite fine detail in personal things that happened in your life, and it gave me the ability to almost put myself in your position. I could, I could really feel the situation. Rather than hear something from a technical and a medical perspective, on a personal perspective, and it was, it was a very powerful book. It's a very powerful way of painting the image so people can fully understand what it's like to suffer from life. And, and I don't know how you did it. You put yourself through four years of study for becoming a Chinese medicine. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, you know, I, I, had to, I loved my career as an occupational therapist, but I couldn't keep up with full-time hospital work. And I sought Chinese medicine and acupuncture as a treatment, and it was really working for me. I thought, well, this is fascinating. And, I, you know, I mean, who knows why I do what I do sometimes. But, you know, that, yeah, that does speak to my motivation is that, okay, well, while I'm lying in bed recovering, I guess I'll take on a four-year Chinese medicine doctorate program and, you know, study lying down, which I did, but I improved enough that by my fourth year I could do the you know, clinical work with patients and stuff and, and then set up my own clinic and I thought I was home free after that. Yes. But again, deaths, stress, close family deaths, you know, the stress of, of running a busy clinic with employees and seeing clients day in and day out and you know, that downhill slide that I, and I didn't realize why. I didn't know that I was dealing with Lyme. Gosh. Yeah. Okay, so there came a point in time when you did find out you had Lyme. How did you find out? Where did you go? Yeah, great question, because so many people are, are dealing with this, right, is how, how, do you, how do you figure this out? And that was one of my big motivations for writing the book. Okay, hopefully I can save anybody 30 years of this and, you know, find some direction in terms of where to go. So I just, I immersed myself um, several years before my diagnosis in the internet learning on every conceivable thing about holistic health. I attended, I think, every summit that was out there. <laughs> There's lots of them. Um, I, I read blog posts. I, I just kept searching and searching, and then I came across um, a blog talk radio show by Dr. Jess Armine and his uh, colleague Sean Bean were doing out of Philadelphia. And 
got really fascinated by their particular approach to looking for root cause of chronic illness. So I participated in the show, questioned them and said, so how do you guys approach complex chronic illness when you don't know what's really going on? And, you know, how do you, how do you assess? And so I got great answers from them and pursued that line, became a client of Sean's and then he, he suspected Lyme and I was dumbfounded because I had never, I barely heard of it, like so many people, barely, no one had considered it in, you know, 30 years of my travels, I'd just been told, well, I wasn't managing my life properly with chronic fatigue syndrome and I needed to reduce my stress, you know, thank goodness I didn't get sent to psychiatrists because I just avoided the system basically, but many people have just been told they're full of it and, you know, go see a psychiatrist. So it was through that, really that drive for self-education and the beauty of the internet, you know, it was so much is available that I, I just persevered. And I, I said in the book, I hit gold. <laughs> I found some really good people. And then Sean referred me on to a, a Lyme literate doctor, a physician who um, then I, I went to for a period of time and did uh, triple antibiotics for almost a year and Realized that wasn't quite the solution either. That was kind of where I ended up uh, finishing the book. So now this is the rest of the story. <laughs> it goes on and, you know, that's typical. Now, what was the effect of the antibiotics when you're taking them? Um, I felt fairly lousy on them, but it was unfortunate that, you know, often you'll see a very definite Herxheimer reaction um, for anybody who's not familiar with that, it's basically a, whatever you're taking is killing stuff off, killing off bugs, and then your body reacts to it by because you can't detoxify or get rid of the debris, I guess we'll call it, uh, fast enough. And so you end up with all kinds of pretty yucky symptoms from that. So I was feeling pretty yucky most of the time anyway, and I didn't get that clear-cut, oh, go on this, you know, cocktail get the Herxheimer reaction and oh great, get the improvement afterwards. It, it was very muddy for the, both the doctor and I to figure out. I was taking very good notes, tracking, you know, multiple symptoms daily, but we just, we couldn't see clear patterns. Um, and I was still doing a bunch of holistic supports at the time, which muddies the waters too, but I wasn't going to give up on all these things, the energy work and other things that I felt were really supportive and important. So you know, it becomes very, that's one of the challenges out there in the treatment world is trying to discern, you know, this cause and effect with symptoms. So I, I still, to this day, I have mixed feelings about it. Some people manage Lyme, never taking an antibiotic, using all natural approaches. Some people do only antibiotics. Part of my mind is happy that I did that too, um, in order, because it was one thing I hadn't tried for 30 years is to go heavily with the drugs. But unfortunately, um, that wasn't, the magic bullet for me. Right. What do you think are the major challenges that people face who are living with chronic Lyme disease? You know, I, I thought about this a lot and I'm, I'm active online a lot with people. I talk to a lot of people, message with people and the, the three big areas that I see, and then I'll, I'll list some of the other ones, but one is this theme of, grief and losses, past and present, in, in every area of living. And I'll, I'll expand on that a bit. But grief is humongous. It's a really big challenge. And the other thing that I see is 
a huge desperation to make the right decision for treatment. The pressure on people is tremendous. The options are almost infinite um, from, you know, uh, orthodox mainstream medicine to full gamut out there of holistic and energetic modalities, all of which have something to offer. I think I'm not sort of a, oh, it's only this that matters and that doesn't, you know, I'm very open to all these things, but people are desperate. And, you know, some of what I hope to talk about today is, okay, how do we handle some of that desperation? What are some ways to <laughs> try and, you know, feel like you're making the right decision? The, the third area, big area of challenge I see with chronic Lyme is that the treatment process is so long. It's protracted, it goes on for years, and it's not a smooth path. It's very, very up and down, and times of some people call it relapse or just increased symptoms can be absolutely devastating because people get this little glamour that oh I'm getting a piece of my life back and then whammo for days weeks months they're they're back down again so th those are really challenging things and so this confusion the overload the symptoms themselves are really hard um, the loss of like personal power and control over your life when you're so limited, you know, goes into that grief and loss part. Yes. Lots of financial stress it can be huge because most treatments are out of pocket if people can do it. A lot of people can't even get treatment. Um, getting stuck in kind of survival mode physiology, you know, we get stuck in this fight, flight, or freeze response, which is a real problem. I talked a bit more about that at length in my book and um, that sets up for all kinds of challenges of making it harder to think clearly because in a in a um, fight flight response you you know that the frontal cortex is shut off and you don't have that clear thinking so when you're operating from your survival brain you can't make decisions very well there's lots of stigma you know, associated with invisible chronic illnesses like this. I mentioned a bit about that earlier, that, well, you look fine. Isolation from not being able to fulfill, you know, our different life roles and loss of independence. Just simple things like loss of fun and enjoyment because every day often becomes a, you know, a survival focus and a treatment focus. And then some of those things drop off and relationships drop off. Relationships change and are stressed and you know some of the isolation comes from that um dealing with health professionals is another big stress especially ones who don't understand um so i mean i could go on and on but those are you know highlights that i see and and, and many more they say that the only that the the good thing about a bad time in your life is that's the time when you discover who your real friends are <laughs> yes. and, then, and then your book you Two, two friends who stuck with you and, and helped you in your battle. Now, one thing that struck me also in your book is you, you, you say that you kept a log, a detailed log, so you could see the effects of any, anything that you're doing. And so you've mentioned us now, you'd see a little bit of, a, bit of an improvement and mm -hmm. then wiped away. But you could see long-term changes, which are harder to see if you, don't, if you don't keep a record of this. So I, I, that struck me as a very yeah, I think, 
Yeah, I think some, and you know, people have their different preferences, and so do their caregivers have preferences. But I think uh, keeping some kind of short notes, I still do it. I started when I was going to the Lyme doctor three years ago, and I think I'm on page 380 in a binder of, <laughs> you know, a little paragraph at the end of each day how they went, highlights of, you know, changes in treatment strategy. But really, this kind of thing needs to be documented or you lose track. And often with Lyme, I know for myself and others have said this, you can't judge like, oh, I'm better this week or I'm better this month. You have to actually look year by year. So for myself, I can go, oh, I'm doing better than I was last year because of this and this, even though day to day, you know, often you'll lose track of that. So yeah, it's a good point that you bring up about the tracking for yes. sure. Now, apparently you've got, and you've developed three uh, skills which are necessary in order to take charge of your health and create a greater state of well-being. Yeah, the, the three areas that I, I like to talk about are, the first one is being your own advocate, and I'll elaborate on that a bit. Um, maximizing your daily function, meaning taking control over how you do things and when you do things during the day, and that is a very underappreciated uh, thing that you do have control over, but I think uh, people often don't really realize what a difference that can make. And the third one is increasing your self-awareness. These things all tie together, so I'll talk a bit about each one. Um, being your own advocate, I think, is kind of the, the key thing. It's a, it's a mindset, it's a set of actions, it involves beliefs and values, uh, behaviors, so, but the concept that the term that I came up with um, is being the general contractor of your own health. It's not what we're taught. We're taught, okay, I have something wrong. I go to the doctor, not 25 doctors, the doctor, and they will give me X thing and I will get better. Any kind of condition like this throws that completely on its heels and it's not, it's not reality. And the sooner anybody can ditch that old paradigm that doesn't apply here the better easier said than done easier said than done because it's very intimidating in a new doctor's office people are scared about their health it, it, I, I recognize how difficult it is so that's why i call it a skill you know it's not something we're, we're not taught about this it's, it, it's a whole new mindset and it's a new way of uh, operating you know inside of the the medical system and outside of the medical system and searching for information and standing up for yourself. Um, it's so many things, hiring and firing uh, health personnel for a healthcare team, because as Sean Bean, I mentioned earlier, said that, and Jess Armine both, that every practitioner has what they call an information wall. And I love that expression. With this, and, and we're not taught about that either, that, you know, a health professional can be fantastic in their area and it's this much of an area. The next one is this much, the next one is this much. And the sooner we recognize that they're limited by being human beings and they're limited by their own information walls, the better for everybody. So I think that's a concept as, as part of the general contractor concept and being your own advocate and speaking up for yourself. We have to know who we're going to, what their limitations are, what their field is, and, you know, not expect that you're going to be able to unleash all your emotional angst 
well-deserved, you know, of what you're going through when you see your cardiologist, because really they're looking at your heart and that's all you're going to get. And it's much better for everybody if we learn, you know, how to, how to work around these things. So definitely that, that area, the, the advocacy area is, is huge, the general contractor. The maximizing daily, is it okay if I just continue? Oh, great, great, yeah, yeah. The maximizing daily function part, um, this concept, this is a kind of the roots of occupational therapy, and that was my first career, is looking for anybody with an illness, accident, chronic illness, injury, we look through the lens of what, how is this affecting mind, body, and spirit, and, and, and within that context, daily function. So I've thought about this since, you know, I was 18 as an OT student. So it's, it's a very ingrained pattern of thinking. And unfortunately, I made the assumption that everybody thinks this way. And I realized, oh, actually, that's not true. So um, I think this is, it's an area of kind of untapped potential that I see in so many people who are ill that they don't realize that if they do things in certain ways, if they assess you know, how cone that observer self of being able to say, how do I go through my day? When do I get up? When do I rest? What do I eat? What do I drink? Where are my stresses coming from? What gives me joy? How do I relax? Do I sleep and rest properly? Do I really want to do this? Do I have to do this? Do I feel shoulds coming at me? To, you know, all these kinds of self questions. And then uh, slowly developing new habits and new behaviors can completely change your life. So for an example, for myself, if I didn't have the strategies, the habits, the structure that I have in my day, I wouldn't be here doing the interview. I wouldn't have written my book. I wouldn't be seeing clients part-time. Um, I wouldn't have the level of function that I eke out. And I, and it's very, uh, designed it's very you know almost contrived in a way but it's made possible by how I schedule my days so you know I think that's something really worth looking at for people and um, it, it can be a new concept people think well I don't feel well so I just can't do anything but when you start to really dissect this out you can find fantastic pieces of information that then you can start to modify your the way you do your day and it can make a, a tremendous difference. So there are always workarounds, you know, there are, and in all the gloom and doom of this horrible experience of Lyme, that's, you know, an important message that I, I really want to get across to people is all is not lost and you have more control than you think. But it's a learned skill and that's why I call it a skill. It's not something innately that you necessarily have ever done before. You might need some help with it. So the, the maximizing daily function, I think, is a huge thing. I am um, one of the naturopaths I follow online, Ben Lynch in Seattle, Washington. There's a lot of, written a book recently, a lot of great work out there. And he says that attaining uh, good health is a four-letter word, W-O-R-K. <laughs> so I think that that is brilliant because, again, old mindsets, attitudes were taught that, well, I should just be able to get up and do my day, or maybe it doesn't matter what I do. And really, if you put your mind to it, get some help, design things in certain ways, you can get more out of, 
um, within the limitations, of course, of your function. And some days are better than others. Sometimes it's a write-off and you just have to go to bed. That's it. So, Gosh. Yeah. Mm. So the building greater self-awareness, you know, this is an area where I spend a lot of my uh, mental energy, emotional energy. It's a strong interest area of mine in working uh, with clients and working with myself. And I think this whole... And, you know, again, in the world we live in is very action-oriented. It's very external-oriented. It's not internally oriented. We're not taught about how to be and how to connect more deeply with ourselves and how to find that inner strength, not by kind of false bravado, but find that inner strength through uh, self-compassion, self-acknowledgement, understanding uh you know what's going on with ourselves and taking the time and the uh, the will and the uh, ability to really go inside and say you know what's what's going on you know how, how what's driving this behavior or what's behind these feelings or what's driving what's going on here so this building self-awareness, I, I just, I can't emphasize enough as a strong, again, a skill, takes practice, many, many layers. I think self-awareness is a lifelong journey. And good news, bad news, when you have a chronic illness, you can fast track that. <laughs> because there, there really isn't, you know, it's, it's a strategy for coping. It's a strategy for surviving this experience. And it's also a strategy and a skill building for being able to see that larger picture of what this at times horrible illness opportunity is providing you in terms of how you can learn to uh, grow as a person. You know, that, that kind of concept makes people just about barf when they're sick because when you're too sick, you know, self-actualization or personal growth is just, you know, somebody would just hit me bringing that up, I'm sure. But when you have you know, a little more mental faculties, a little bit more energy, or the inclination naturally to kind of start looking inside and go, well, who am I now? And what's going on with this illness? And um, what's going on with this, you know, the awareness of the fight, flight, and freeze responses, which I talk about in the book. That's a huge self-awareness piece that, again, can be learned about, modified, you know, bring ourselves down when the stress level gets high and you have to be self-aware you have to learn how to tune into your body in order to do that yes uh, tell me lisa how have you used intuitive tools as part of your care decision making for your health that's been a huge um area and, and as i mentioned earlier about that treatment angst that people get into what do i do what do i do there's so many options how do i know what is right um, that's where I think, uh, and choosing practitioners too, I th those are areas where I've used instead of just all cognitive, which can go around in circles of pro and con list and all left brain activity, right? Um, fortunately, I, I did really strong formal intuitive training because I was just curious about that. So I spent years immersed in it and then have carried on for the past, um, I guess it's been 18 years now. Um, with specific tools of channeling a spirit guide, uh, tuning into energies beyond the everyday thinking mind, but quite specifically to medical intuition, tuning into the body, 
tuning into the your, my, what's going on with my stomach with this, you know, complaint or what's going on. Let's talk to the liver for a few minutes and see what's happening here. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, using muscle testing is another, some people would call it intuitive tool or energy type of tool. I know you talk about it through a spooky too, which is great formally in your manual and bring it up. And I, I can't say enough good things about it. When I, that's my go-to often because it's quick is okay what do I do with this do I choose this or choose that do I do this now or do I do that now muscle testing is when you learn how to ask those yes no answers and whatever method you use it, it works and for anybody who doesn't know what muscle testing is it's basically it was, I think it's developed around the 1970s by a chiropractor who found that when you brought a substance to the person's energy Field. he was testing nutrients and supplements and foods if the substance was harmful somehow the person who would resist press down in their arm to have them resist and if the substance was harmful the body couldn't maintain strength if the substance was good for them the body could hold the position and this then they found out this happened with emotions negative emotions loss of strength positive emotions holding strength so this has been applied by countless practitioners and everyday people out there all the time to use as a tool. There are various ways of doing it. There's lots of info out there. And I think it's fantastic. Again, a learned skill, right? Um, yet another learned skill. But I, I think, you know, with training, with practice, there's lots of possibilities out there. People are, you know, welcome anybody to inquire with me as to, you know different uh, training things that I would recommend but you can I think the concept is, is odd to people that are especially very science-based well how can you I don't need to tell you about this you know you're involved <laughs> spooky too which is energetic medicine right it processes but I think it can be hard to make that leap because people think it's not scientific it's it's quite scientific <laughs> You know, all energy is very quantum physics is all very scientific. And I think if you can't get your head around that for people watching, uh, there are great things that you can read to just start to, uh, that's what I had to do. I came from science, health, you know, orthodox healthcare. How, how could this intuitive stuff be real? Really struggled with it. So I had to read books on science experiments to do with intention. Lynn McTaggart's book, The Field, was one of the first ones I read, fantastic. All these experience, experiments on mind intention and going back and changing things in time. I know you've done episodes around time and stuff too, so. That was an interesting one. <laughs> Pardon? That was an interesting one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I haven't listened yet, but I saw it and I, want, I definitely want to check that out. So you can learn this stuff yourself, the intuitive uh, realm, and then you can also hire people to help you with that, help teach you, do you know access. So I, I do both. I've had um, I do it for myself, and I help other people with it. And I, I highly recommend in some form that if you're curious at all, just check it out. Yeah. This muscle testing, this is an aside. Yeah. It's very simple to learn. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, very, there's different ways of doing it. And, and, but once you've experienced it, especially as a, uh, if you're cynical about it, if you, if you really don't think it's going to work, and then you try and, try and oppose it and you can't help it, but give a, give a feedback. And you, yeah. it's just incredible to actually experience it. And, yes. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, they're free to try. So, yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's a theme emerging here. I think in some of what we're talking about that, that if you can find that curiosity, that little bit of opening, that little bit of willingness to, well, I don't know about this. I haven't had experience with it, but what would it be like to just check it out? Yes. You know, what would it be like to just be curious and maybe you don't have to jump in with both feet, but just, you know, just inquire a bit and find out. And I think that that can serve us well in so many areas of life, including Do you do any meditation, Lisa? Yeah, I've done various kinds of uh, visualization, meditation programs, CDs, audios. And so I tend to mix it up. Um, You're not supposed to mix it up, Lisa. <laughs> I tend to mix it up. Well, there's another, you know debatable thing you know people who do certain forms of meditation think that that's the best form and i wouldn't argue with that if that's working for sure. somebody but i tend to do i've done very focused programs for you know a year at a time an hour a day um i've done shorter ones of 10 minute visualization things so i do tend to i based on what i feel i need that day but i know if i don't do something like that um i notice a difference I notice I don't come down uh, to relax in the same way so I think there are many ways to do it and um, so you heard you don't don't mix it up that's what you do <laughs> well um, I'm just talking on what I've been told you know that by I've started doing transcendental meditation and we, I know of a friend of ours who's who been, who's very experienced in one form of meditation start doing transcendental and then they went back to the first one and then they're having difficulty doing the transcendental again mm -hmm. so but, but i guess it's really finding a form of meditation that suits somebody the best and yeah. i have and i personally have tried other types of meditation but i wouldn't really try more than once because it just it wasn't fun it wasn't natural to always have my back perfectly flat and and not think about anything and 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 visual oh it was just too difficult, really, for me. I, um, I like I like things simple. Being a lazy person, so <laughs> and, and transcendental meditation, you basically just say a word to clear your mind of other thoughts and just relax. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if your mind wanders a little bit, well, let it wander. Your, your mind wa wants to do it. Well, why why keep it tethered? So, yeah, so you can't stop your mind. <laughs> No, and I just couldn't. I'd find myself solving problems while yeah. I was doing meditation in the other one. And I couldn't stop myself. With this one, I can just relax and just enjoy it. And also another benefit is it's only 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's more doable than an hour, right? Doable, that's the word. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, you made a good point that people have to find what works for them. And you may have to try a bunch of different things. But the whole idea of coming to some refocusing of the mind because you can't stop it from thinking but as you're talking about having the you know the phrase you say or the focal point you keep coming back to and then your mind goes in between but that art of practice of bringing the mind back to focus in, yeah. that's common to so many styles i think can be really helpful yeah yes yes now you mentioned about the value of looking inside yourself exploring also we we're going to talk about exploring your purpose, values, beliefs, and self-connection. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So 
I think I, I mentioned, just touched on briefly about um, kind of losing your sense of connection to your inner self with the daily pressures of, you know, illness and that survival energy that gets triggered. And so um, one of the things I, I, I like to really emphasize for people is this whole idea of when you lose yourself in the sea of symptoms and illness and misery, <laughs> you know, feeling like every, you, you can't do the things that you want to do. It's kind of like, I see this as kind of an anchor point, like a self-anchor point of, okay, well, what, what do you know for sure? And what, as Oprah says, you know for sure, and what, what can you hang on to? And what can you come back to deep within yourself as that uh, part of yourself that isn't destroyed by the illness, the part of yourself that doesn't, isn't, hasn't gone anywhere, but you may have lost sight of. So... Um, focusing on your values and your core beliefs and who you are as a person, which of course does change a bit over time based on your experiences, but it's, it's that deeper aspect of being versus doing. You, you lose the doing part when you're sick for a long time. And um, because our, you know, I think all cultures seem to be in general, there's differences of course, but the focus on doing is, is so uh, so overrated and you remove that in illness and you know well who am I anymore without my role as a you know I, I can't be a mom the way I want to and I can't do my office job the way I want to and I, I can't be a partner the way I want to and you know all these areas I can't do my garden the way I want to I can't you know take care of my dog the way I want, you know all these things that people feel like they can't do so the the looking at strengthening your values and getting in touch with you know what they are you know if for example you know for me strong values for me are, are honesty and um, integrity and kindness you know if I think about those values being really important to me it also gives me an anchor to know what where I'm out of sync with other people with health professionals with areas uh, you know of my life with circles of people and you know I think when you when you bump up against someone who doesn't share the same values at all it can it can be a good reflection back to you to know okay the reason this was so upsetting to me or the reason I, I can't I just can't manage this particular health professional I need to find somebody else is they just they don't have values that match who I really am and what I strongly believe in. So getting in touch with that, I think go, going back to the decision making, it helps you make better decisions. And then going back to the, you know, managing day to day, you know, that awareness in day to day life and functional ability, it really can help you to pull these things together and make certain decisions about how you spend your very limited time and energy. Um, the purpose part, you know, you know, people talk about life purpose and I do a intuitive process called soul's blueprint, looking at well, who are you now in this incarnation and where did, you know, what brought you here and what are you here to do and how's that going so far? Is it being expressed in your life and your work if you're working or not expressed? And mm -hmm. uh, there are ways formally books, courses, all kinds of stuff um, for getting in touch with your life purpose. Again, that's an anchor point when you lose that sense of self of, what matters to you, it can be really hard to sort of wonder what you're fighting for or wonder what you're moving towards or what you 
lose sight of what what matters to you most in life and what you're here to do. So I think they can be really strong um, focal points for getting in touch with um, what you're doing here and where you're going and, and ways, as I said, to navigate um, through this whole long process. A couple of questions have come through on Facebook. Thank you for your questions. There's one from Teresa Bruin. Teresa asks, what do you think about ozone machines? Have you tried an ozone machine, Lisa? I, I haven't. That's one thing I haven't tried. I've heard fantastic things about 10-pass ozone, particularly for Lyme. Um, I heard good reports on it. Like everything, I've also heard the odd, oh, well, that didn't work for me, which is, you know, I, I, I it's, it's tough, right? Because there isn't one answer for everybody. But yes, I've, not personal experience, but I have heard uh, some very positive things about that very strong process. And a few summers ago, Teresa, I had a, an expert talking specifically on ozone, and he was a trained doctor. He would take the ozone intravenously, which is quite scary in my mind. But he, um, I believe that will have terrific results with Lyme because it will take any spirochetes which are inside in the blood, bloodstream, and it will take the ozone directly to the organs. But he was, he was, he was uh, saying how remarkable ozone is. And ozone machines aren't expensive, especially the ones that just ozonate water. So perhaps you can get a cheaper model and just see if there's any improvement in your condition. Okay. Um, Another question is from Bob Tompkins. Hi, Bob. Um, Bob asks, uh, what should be done after completing... Oh, this is actually a spooky question, sorry. Um, Bob, can I ask answer this question after the summer? Because um, it's not really one, a question that's for the, for the expert that we have here. So I'll, ask, I'll answer this question after the summer. So, sorry for that, Lisa. Um, now, um, how does the acknowledgement of... Um, so acknowledgement, truth, and presence, the powerful healers. Now this is this is another favorite topic area of mine. Um, I think also underrated and under discussed and underappreciated in the world. And that's by acknowledgement. One way to acknowledge is by the power of compassionate listening, and it's being able to. This is I'm going to talk about applying to yourself as well as in applying to other people. And it's, it's easier said than done. When you're sitting with someone who's very distressed, you know, in person or on the phone, it can be really hard to not try to fix, try to judge, try to come up with suggestions, try to make it all better, try to joke the person out of it, try you know, lighten things up. Um, but the power of someone being able to tell their story, to talk about their feelings, to express what's going on and have someone not just kind of go, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> sort of be there, but really be there, really feel their presence, feel their care and feel that heart connection and not get interrupted, not get, as I said, you know, off on all kinds of side um, agendas that being present is it, it's something to look for I, I believe hard to find 
but something to look for in health professionals, even if you can get a, a little bit of that, it's something to look for and, and hope for in uh, loved ones, people close to you, friends, circles. Um, I think the, the power of healing in that, uh, just that act of being truly heard and seen and witnessed and felt um, by someone else is absolutely amazing and absolutely underdone. So as you can imagine, of course, it, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot to be able to offer that to somebody. That's a learned skill too. And it's not just professional training. It goes deeper than that. Some professional training can talk about listening skills and stuff, but to be, I think, a really a true listener, you have to work on yourself. And this is something that is, bit of a hot topic for me in health professionals I would love in a maybe in future worlds or as I recover I would love to work with um, willing health professionals on this because I think it could change the face of healthcare that in itself um, being able to have them by doing their own work and I'll talk a bit more about what this means doing their own work they're able to really be present for somebody else because, you know, we've all had those experiences, not just from healthcare professionals, but well-meaning people around us. And, you know, when you have a chronic illness or serious illness or often, a, you know, a, a decline, like in, uh, somebody is declining in a condition for which maybe there isn't treatment and they know that their end is coming near, this is really uncomfortable for people who haven't dealt with this at all in themselves or around other people. It's really uncomfortable. Um, whether people acknowledge it or not, they don't really want to often be there and deal with it. So people can act pretty weird around those who are suffering with whatever it is they're suffering with. They can um, sometimes, and it's just, it's, it's triggering their own vulnerability. It's triggering their own discomfort and their own, oh my God, I can't imagine being in your shoes. But instead of being aware back to self-awareness again, being, instead of being aware of where that's coming from and their own discomfort and maybe even honestly saying, Oh, I'm, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. It, it's, it's must be really difficult. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Show me what is helpful. You know, even that heartfelt response would be better than oh go on, pull up your socks. Or, you know, some of the things that people say that are, you know, judgmental or harsh or, oh, well, you're not really sick, you can't really be sick, or blaming them, well, if you just did this, then you'd be all better. Like, there's so many horrible things I hear from people all the time about how they're being treated by friends, family, often awful, um, and health professionals that are just, they're just cruel. But if we, you know, and yes, I, I would like to see health professionals be more responsible in this, but if we step back, be that observer, and look, at, well, why is this happening? They're just, they're triggered, they're scared. They're vulnerable or they're involved in their own busyness of their life. And the thought of really taking in that suffering of someone else is, is too much. And so, you know, I think that's why people can't really be there often. But there are, you know, just like I said, learn skills. There are ways to train for this. There are ways that you can ask the, you know, for caregivers, family members, health professionals, you can just outright ask the person, what would be supportive to you? Yeah. How can I 
be there for you? What do you need? And be open and open your heart. I was kind of famous as an OT, not famous, but known as an OT because I just always wore my heart on my sleeve. I would sit and cry with my quadriplegic patients over their fate. And it just, I mean, that was considered unprofessional, right? Well, you're supposed to be stiff and step back. I mean, there's, there isn't a kinder thing I think that a health professional can do than to have that degree of compassion. Not that they're sobbing and can't do their job, but you know what I mean? Just that moment of human connection where they, you know, through your empathy, through your heart, through your expression, you basically you're saying, I, I see you. I hear you. I, 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 I'm witnessing you. I'm here. That's, that is, incredible healing it's amazing i don't think i don't think i've ever seen that in a in a medical doctor yeah never seen that empathy i've seen care yeah and professionalism but i haven't seen the empathy in the feeling now i read your book and you at the end of the book which was very detailed i had still one question which you which that book didn't answer and i'd, I'd like to ask that question yeah. Now, it is a bit close, but your book did cover personal things, which surprised me how open you were, which to me showed me just how, to what lengths you'll take to teach people, to make people. And so that I, I, I really did gain a lot from it. But this is the question which I have. You've had a chronic disease for 30 years plus. In your opinion, do you think this disease has made you a better person, better than what you would have been if you had not been struck with Lyme? That is an excellent question, and I think all of us need to ask ourselves that. So I appreciate you asking me, and I haven't thought about it lately. So, But my, my answer is yes. And the reason for that is that Yes, I was always empathetic. Yes, I was always curious. Yes, I've always cared about people and, you know, enjoyed doing a lot of learning about a lot of things. But the amount that I have, the amount that I've learned um, because I've been desperate to figure things out is just tremendous. I would never have the degree of learning and the breadth of variety of careers and things like that that has just completely opened me to so many things if I had stayed healthy as an occupational therapist as much as I was the weird one doing weird energy things even then but um, I think I think yes I would have branched out a bit more maybe I would have you know gone into the intuitive and energy realm a bit more but I think I always would have been stuck in that science only uh, you know, conventional medicine paradigm in order to just get by in my environment. So just the, the learning part in answer to your question, yes, I've, I've learned so much more. In terms of person, like the inside part, I mean, absolutely. Um, I've, and one of, the, one of the positive things I think that's come out of this for me is the ways in which I've had to do for my own survival and my own recovery, I've had to look at things within myself that I would not have taken the time or gone through that hard work, I think, of doing it. Because, you know, when you're sick and you're alone a lot, um, there's, there's nobody, like, it comes down to you. 
I mean, it does in life anyway, but it's really glaring. It's in your face when you're sick for so long that there aren't all these external distractions. You're not going out drinking with your friends if that was your thing. You're not, you know, involved in sports. You're not um, involved in as many, you know, uh, cognitive or career pursuits and social things. So it can get very quiet, but in that quiet, you can really... It gives you that opportunity to go deeper. And then also when you find all these external things aren't the ticket out, you know, the, 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 the ticket back to better health, it just naturally, if you're a curious person, which I am, you start to go deeper and deeper and deeper. It questions if you have faith in the universe, God, something, something, whatever, beyond your everyday thinking mind energetically that's an opportunity to strengthen that. For me, it has. I don't have a formal religion, but I do have a stronger uh, connection to what's out there. I have a much broader capacity for my suffering and other people's suffering. I'm kinder to myself than I was. So, yeah, in so many ways, I, I think it has made me a better person, which I would not say on my bad days. <laughs> <laughs> I would not. Well, we're all human, you know, but, but uh, what you're doing is terrific. Hey, I've got another question for you. Um, can you explain how perseverance and consistent small steps with the right support um, are important and is actually essential for recovering uh, from bad health? Yeah. Um, speaking of perseverance, there's a quote that I love. I'll just read it. When you've exhausted all possibilities, remember this, you haven't. <laughs> That's Thomas Edison. I love that because people are saying, oh, I've tried everything. I've tried everything. Yes. There's nothing left. I'm going yes. to be sick the rest of my life. Mm. Perseverance, because it may be, and you hear this in business, you hear this in personal lives and finding a partner, you hear this in you know, health, uh, trying to get better from a health issue. You know, just when the person was just about to give up, they almost did countless times, but maybe that one last time, oh, there is another piece. Yes. The, the tipping point, you know, it's taking them beyond. So, and, you know, it depends how you're right, you're wired too. But um, for me, I, I'm wired to persevere. I've been like that my whole life. It's, it's a, an advantage and disadvantage in type A people. <laughs> But the, the advantage of that perseverance that I don't see in people who somehow can't find that in themselves, who don't have the supports, whatever. If you don't persevere, you're not going to, you're not going to get beyond where you are now. You, you know, it's happenstance, external influences. So perseverance, absolutely just, you know, keep going. You got to keep going. Yes. Um, the small steps for sure. And the perseverance is in the small steps and, we think, oh, well, you know, this one minute thing isn't enough to do anything. You know, we're, we're conditioned to be kind of all or nothing and yeah, go for the big times, yeah. you know. But it's those consistent small steps. You know, someone's trying to get back to some exercise, literally walking around the house, then walking around the yard. <laughs> and then, you know, I did this. I, I made it, speaking of yearly improvements, I made it. I used to go to the gym and work out in my better years. Missed it. Love it. I started back a year ago going for five minutes 
you know, five pound biceps curls a few times, you know, a couple of main muscle groups, go home, go to bed for two hours. So I've kept it up once a week and twice a week, little steps. And now, you know, the strength is coming back, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's like bit by bit by bit, very frustrating and necessary. But, and, and then the support part of that, um, you know, we're, we're wired as human beings to be in community, to be in connection with people. We're not wired in our survival brain and our physiology. We're not wired to be complete loners all of the time by any means. So the listening part, I talked about the connecting part, the supports, the going within yourself, the building of self-awareness to really identify your needs and identify and be able to ask people and connect with people and find like-minded people and, and reach out to a community of, of people who, you know, are kind and understanding. I think all of those things really have to be in place as part of the recovery process. We're talking with Lisa Dennis. Thank you so much for coming to our show. We are blessed with your presence and we've learned a terrific lot about Lyme disease and how to beat it or how to fight it and improve our lives. We've had Lyme people in the past on board to teach us, but you've take, looked at things from a different angle, more of a personal angle. And really, um, there is hope and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So thank you so much for our show. Thank you. For our show. Now, the book is titled Unveiling Lyme Disease. Uh, where can people purchase this book, Lisa? Um, it's available on Amazon worldwide, so that's an easy way to get it. Great. Yeah. Okay. Kindle or, or paperback format, yeah. I've read the book. I found it very, very, very good reading. So well done. Thanks, John. <laughs> okay, and thank you. Oh, and I've got one. Well, I'll answer the last um, unanswered question just now. It wasn't one specifically for you, for you Lisa. I'll answer that now is uh, Tom, uh, Bob Tompkins, sorry, um, who asked what should be done after completing Spooky 2 Lyme Protocol to maintain the progress made. Well, Spooky has got a Lyme Protocol, which has been proven to be very good. Um, but after it's been completed, you can repeat it several times, but you can certainly run the terrain protocol both in the background whilst it's running and between um, sessions. They, um, Lisa, um, the Spooky 2, has, <laughs> we've got a terrain protocol, which is the first thing you basically do when you take Spooky out from the box. And what that does, it takes all the heavy metals out and all the nasties. It goes, starts with the heavy metals, goes through the parasites and then to the bacteria and then the viruses. It goes all the way through and gives you a, a good flush, your whole system. And so, Bob, this is what I'd recommend uh, you do to um, to maintain gains as lisa has explained you get your ups we see a little bit of, bit of a light and then it goes down again well with any luck if you run the terrain protocol that that little gap will become <laughs> larger and give you more of a fighting chance with this dreadful disease okay well thanks again lisa for coming on to our show it's, it has been fantastic and thank you everybody for watching and have a good week until the next time goodbye <laughs>